You're listening to a podcast edition of Closer to Truth. For more information about this series, visit our website, closertotruth.com. I try to hope that God exists. So what's the worst thing that I can do? I can try to prove that God exists with proofs of God that do not work. The more I want God to exist, the more I must question proofs of God's existence. Because I root for God to be real, bad arguments for God scare me. But who knows? Maybe all the God arguments are bad. That's why I fear fallacies. What are fallacies in proving God exists? I'm Robert Lawrence Kuhn, and Closer to Truth is my journey to find out. I'm on hunt for fallacies in finding God, so I begin in Oxford, England, with one of the most trenchant atheists on earth, the distinguished physical chemist, Peter Atkins. In battling believers, Peter takes no prisoners. Peter, I hope you don't get mad at me, but for most of my life, I've really been interested in whether God exists or not. Do you see many fallacies that people use in order to prove or demonstrate the existence of God? Well, they must all be fallacious because (laughs) there is no God. It's whether you can detect the fallacy easily enough. Um, I mean, I suppose a scientist would think of um, a first cause as a very powerful argument for um, for the existence of God. Where did it all come from? Who started it off? Terribly difficult question. Um, but I think that any question that is given the answer, well, God must have done it, is an abnegation of the intellect. Uh, it really is, it sounds as though it's a positive statement, but in fact, it's a, it's a camouflage of ignorance. And so it means that people have stopped thinking. And if you are confronted with the question of a first cause, where the universe come from, comes from, don't just slip onto the feather bed of saying God did it, because that's meaningless, totally, utterly meaningless. What scientists have got to do is to trace causes back to their origin and find a mathematical theory of the emergence of the universe. I hope that that will prove possible. There is no evidence yet that it will not prove possible. And anyone, any scientist who says that it is impossible to account for the emergence of the universe from nothing without intervention is, um, is not being a real scientist. Is, is just too pessimistic. If we look back historically, we certainly see science moving ever forward and religion in terms of the explanatory areas that they deal with retreating. Yeah. 
and perhaps religion is in some corner now, but they're staking out a very strong position. But let's look at the, the historical flow, and we have what is called God of the Gaps, that yes. every time something is not understood... Yeah, it's an abnegation of the intellect. But, and, and we've seen it occur yes. in, in many different stages. Yeah, every time it occurs, it's abnegation of the intellect. So take that God of the Gap, take it out of your sentence and say, abnegation of the intellect, that's what it is. It's people giving up trying to think and using a, a kind of a spell. You've got to get from point A to point B in an argument. You've got a gap. So you, you weave a spell, you cast a spell and you're there. <laughs> and, and you call it God, you don't call it a spell. I don't see any part of the natural world that um, requires the invocation of the spell we call God. Why did these issues provoke such emotion? People are terrified, aren't they? But I don't think people should have fear about what is being discovered. I mean, maybe people should be terrified of the thought that there is no afterlife, but they should come to terms with it and you know, enjoy the pre-afterlife <laughs> rather than waiting for the non-existent afterlife. So as we look at people who, who put forth arguments for God, what is the appropriate response Go to your psychiatrist, I think. <laughs> I think it's deeply interesting that you've got these very clever people, scientists, some of them, you know, eminent scientists, who even in this day and age still believe in God. And it's quite extraordinary to me that, um, that scientists with the current level of understanding of the power of explanation and understanding and comprehension that science provides, that there are still people out there who think that there must be this sort of supernatural thing going on. I, I think they have to go to psychiatrists, really. <laughs> it must be their upbringing which has given them some deep insecurity, and especially as I see not one iota of evidence in, in favour of it, except sentiment. To Peter, all arguments for God are specious and fraudulent. And in dismissing theists, he is not, well, overly polite. I like Peter's spirit, small s, of course. But why can't I go all the way with his substance? In demanding natural explanations, Peter rightly hesitates at the origin of the universe. But the answer, he asserts, is surely not God. What then explains all there is? I ask an atheistic physicist who has made it his mission to show that God does not exist. Victor Stenger says that quantum physics and cosmology demonstrate God's absence. How so? Vic, you believe that God does not exist and Huge numbers of people, including many scientists, certainly philosophers and theologians, believe God does exist. What are the kinds of arguments that they use to show God exists that you think are fallacies? The classic arguments go back to Thomas Aquinas and his five different proofs. And they all basically amounted to the same thing that you needed uh, somebody to start the universe going, you needed to cause a first mover and so on. In modern terms, this is 
stated as the Kalam cosmological argument. It comes from Islamic sources, but it's been modernized. And it, it goes something like this. Number one, everything that begins has a cause. Number two, the universe had a beginning. So number three, therefore it follows that the universe had a cause. And as Thomas Aquinas always said, and that's what we know as God. Well, let's look at each of those. First of all, is the argument that everything that begins has a cause. That's in fact not true. We can think of many examples in modern physics uh, where events occur in an uncaused way, an unpredetermined way. Uh, one example would be the excited atom where the electron is in a higher energy level. It drops down to a lower energy level and there's no, nothing in physics that tells us uh, when a particular uh, transition will happen. Therefore, the first axiom of the cosmological argument has to fail. It fails the second uh, uh, hypothesis as well, that the universe had a beginning. Now, the argument is usually given that the Big Bang shows that the universe has a, has a beginning. Well, in fact, all it shows is that the universe that we have now exploded from some tiny pocket 13.7 billion years ago, but we don't know that there wasn't anything before that. In fact, there are theories, models that provide a mechanism for the universe having tunneled through from a, 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 a previous universe. What are some others? Design argument. Okay, let's just look at the world around us. How could all of this have happened by accident? I don't know how to explain it. Uh, how, well, therefore, it must have some supernatural origin. Well, that's basically uh, an argument from ignorance. And it turns out that when you look very closely at it, it not only doesn't look designed, it looks just like it should look if it wasn't designed. You find that uh, the data that we take in cosmology fit very well to a purely naturalistic picture. So there's no reason why the universe can't be self-sustainable, uh, self-organizing. And besides, if God uh, created the universe, and who created God? It's an end. God is really no explanation for the existence of the universe. It just puts back the explanation one, one, one layer. At, at its ultimate, you have to come in one way or another to something that's defined as self-existing, which is the traditional definition of God. Yeah, <laughs> no, right. I mean, if God, but, uh, but you see the logic of it. Once you accept the fact that it's possible to have something that was was not created. Yes. Then you, you have to that pick. something could be the universe. Yeah. You, just, you, you, you just pick you what you want, you, yeah. but you got to pick something. Right. So, <laughs> and uh, the simplest thing to do is to pick the universe. So. <laughs> no first cause argument for God. No design argument. But why the laws of quantum physics, Vic? Where did the laws come from? There's always residual, always something unexplained and supposedly unexplainable. But lack of explanation does not justify fallacies. Fallacies are just sloppy thinking. Arguments for God can be complex. So often only a philosopher can follow its tortuous trails of semantics and rhetoric. I meet 
atheistic philosopher Michael Tooley. Michael, let me tell you a little secret. I would love to believe in the existence of God for a whole host of reasons. But every time I hear the arguments of theists, I may believe in their conclusion, but I'm discouraged by their arguments. As a philosopher, how do you look upon some of the methodologies that theists use to prove the existence of God? One thing that happens quite frequently is that uh, something's put forward as an argument in support of the existence of God, but it's really, if it's a proof, a proof of something very different. So for example, you have arguments for a first cause, arguments for an unmoved mover, arguments for a being that's necessary and has necessity of itself, okay, right? If you look at those arguments, right, some of those don't even give you a reason for believing in a personal sort of being, right? I mean, the first cause could be something purely physical, right? So you don't even get uh, an argument for a personal God, let alone a God, for example, who's omnipotent and omniscient, and let alone an argument for a God who's good or perfectly good, right? So some arguments are fallacious simply because they don't bear upon certain crucial properties of God, like being a personal God or being morally perfect. Other problems arise in arguments that appeal to personal religious experiences, right? And so a Christian may appeal to his or her personal religious experiences for believing that God exists or that Jesus is the Son of God and so on. And what's overlooked here is that people in other religions have experiences that are really quite comparable and that lead to conflicting conclusions, right? And so a uh, person who is a Muslim has religious experiences that lead him or her to believe in the existence of Allah, defined as a purely monotheistic, non-Trinitarian God, right? Uh, people in Eastern religions have experiences that are compatible with polytheism, etc., right? And so typically people focus upon their own experiences and uh, don't take into account at all the fact that people, other people have different experiences, leading to conclusions inconsistent with the ones they're trying to draw. One can argue, though, that there is a commonality between all of those views that is something so intrinsic to human nature that senses that there is something transcendent, something that is of a non-physical character. Well, that's an interesting, important response. I mean, it's suggesting that there's supposed to be a core, okay, right, that... Uh, uh, is the same between the different experiences and that uh, it's, so to speak, uh, leads to valid conclusions, right? But if you look at the, the parts that disagree, what you find is they're heavily dependent upon the culture in which one is raised, right? Uh, if you're raised in India, the probability you would have a vision of the Virgin Mary would not be very high, whereas if you're raised in Spain, it might be much higher, right? So what we know is that a person's culture, the family in which he or she was raised, has a real impact upon the content of the experience, right? And the question is whether, given that so, it's reasonable to believe that nonetheless, there is a core that's reliable. Is it odd that while I want to believe in God, I also want to expose these fallacies? No. I am offended when believers spout off so-called proofs of God that are patently absurd. Fallacies are my enemy. They undermine belief like evil demons. That's why I hate these fallacies. I want to find them and I want to kill them. So I search for more. I meet Duke philosopher Walter Sennett Armstrong, a font of anti-God fallacies. Walter, you don't believe in God, right? Not only do I not believe in God, I believe God does not exist. Okay, good. You have spent part of your career, small part, but a part, looking at the arguments of some pretty smart people who believe in the existence of God, right? Yes. What are some of the fallacies that you see in those arguments? 
One example is what I call the fallacy of bloated conclusions. You get some premises that will yield one conclusion, which is a pretty weak conclusion, and then you bloat it up so it looks like you've really proven the existence of God. And one example of this would be Aquinas' cosmological argument. He argues that something must have created the universe. There must have been a first cause, okay? He says, therefore, God exists. Well, it doesn't follow that anything like the traditional Christian God exists. Something could have created the universe and died the next day. You don't even know if it still exists. You don't know whether it's good. You don't know whether it's eternal. You don't know whether it's a person. Another example is religious experience. You know, when people have a religious experience, that leads them to believe in God. But how do they know that the thing they experience is all-powerful or all-good or all-knowing or good at all, for that matter? And so they bloat the conclusion up, uh, usually in line with the religious tradition that they're familiar with. Okay, another fallacy. Um, excessive footnotes. I love the fallacy of excessive footnotes. And that's simply that some people, when they give these arguments, they cite authority after authority after authority. They want to say, well, you, you need to believe in the Big Bang, and once you believe in the Big Bang, then something had to cause the Big Bang, and, and that must have been God. And so they cite authority after authority about the Big Bang, and they show that they understand the physics and cite the laws. Another favorite is to cite as an authority the atheists themselves. A theist will cite an atheist yeah. as an authority for what the theist wants to say, and they go, ah, gotcha, <laughs> you know. But I don't have to agree with everything all atheists say. I mean, there's lots of atheists who said right. stupid things. Other arguments. Another argument is false dichotomy. People will saddle the atheist with the position, well, you must believe either this or this, but that can't be right, so we must be right. So they'll say, for example, uh, they'll say, the universe must have begin, begun either by chance or through law or through a designer. And so as an atheist, I go, well, I don't know which one to pick because I'm not sure what they mean by it. And then the dichotomy would be the law chance on one side and the uh, personal Judeo-Christian God on the other. Right. And that indeed is a false dichotomy because there are innumerable explanations that are, are not either one of those. From a logical point of view, you have not exhausted the universe of, of possibilities at all by setting up that dichotomy. Exactly. So another fallacy is equivocation. Uh, very often a term will be used in different ways in the course of the same argument. And you can make one step when it means one thing, uh, but then you can't make the later step. For universe, for example, sometimes means just the physical universe as we experience it and what we live in. Sometimes it includes God. Sometimes it includes what happened before the Big Bang. That term gets thrown around and used in many different ways, and that creates problems in a lot of the arguments that use that concept. How about another fallacy? Well, another very common fallacy is the straw man fallacy. One example of that is when Theists say that atheists must believe that nothing's really morally right or wrong. There's no objective morality. Well, atheism doesn't imply anything of the sort. So uh, you're going to be able to make fun of atheists and get people to turn against atheists by ascribing to atheists a position that they don't hold. With all of these fallacies, uh, some of them emerging from what we would both consider very smart people, philosophers, oh, yeah. why do you think the, these occur. So when they really want to believe something, people start deciding on the conclusion first and constructing the arguments later 
That's when you typically get fallacies. Walter relishes fallacies. He loves exposing bad arguments for God, revealing obvious blunders or hidden inconsistencies. To me, these bad arguments are not strangers. I've met them all on the front lines of the science-religion battle. For believers, they are pitfalls and stumbling blocks. By twisting logic to try to prove that God exists, bad arguments suck their gullible proponents down the sinkhole of embarrassing error. So why is it? After uncovering the fallacies of proving God and discarding them all as impotent frauds, that I am still not willing to discard God. Why does my hope survive? I bring the fallacy question to a scientist who believes in God. I go to Cambridge, England, to meet the director of the Faraday Institute of Science and Religion, Dennis Alexander. I think God of the gaps sort of ideas are very, very common, you know, in the history of apologetics, how believers try and justify their beliefs. And usually what often they do is to point to something that we don't yet in science understand very well, like the origin of life or the bacterial flagellum, you know, how exactly it came into being or something like that, you know. And then they say, ha ha, you know, here's a gap in the scientific story. So. God did it, you know, this, and they bring God in to just sort of explain those kind of current gaps and uh, sort of ignorance that we have at the moment. And of course, what happens obviously is that those gaps close, the scientific story gets better, and, and that God sort of shrinks. And sometimes people have, you know, used brain science and things, ah, oh, well, the mind is something we can't really understand. It's some way God is located in the mind in a way that's a bit spooky and mysterious. And now, of course, neuroscience has begun to understand the brain uh, in a much more thorough way, although very much incomplete way. But I think it's very dangerous, you know, to put a sort of gap there in the mind as if somehow that's the special location of God. Um, so, so I think the God of the gaps argument in all its various exemplars, you know, has been very, very kind of misused over the years. If we look at the history of religion and science, uh, we see science gradually painting religion into a tighter and tighter corner. Well, I think religion needs to go back to the sort of philosophy of the early founders of the Royal Society in the mid-17th century. I mean, these were people of deep religious faith, and they saw it almost as their mission to try and understand this amazing world that God had brought into being. And so they saw all their activities as uncovering the wonders of creation, undercovering uh, what God had done, and actually saw it as part of their worship. And I think it's important for religious people to you know, get, recapture that sense of when they do their science, it's part of their worship. I mean, when I go to my lab, I don't use sort of God language in the lab to understand immunology or the brain or whatever it is. But I am amazed by what I discover, and I see that as part of my worship. I think, you know, uncovering what God has done in the created order is a duty that religious people have and, and should be seen as part of their religious activity. So I, I, I don't think we should think of science, as it were, in, in roading upon the domain of religion, but rather science expanding our understanding and concept of who God is. Let's take another example, uh, and that is the proliferation of what we see often in the media of what seems to be cheap tricks 
mm. purporting to be miracles yes. that prove the existence of God. Mm. I have to say I'm pretty skeptical. My, my general default position is don't believe it. <laughs> I guess that's the scientific training, isn't it? And so certainly I would come with great skepticism to all of these sort of miraculous cures and, and so on and so forth. And so I, I think there would be dangerous things to try and use probably as a justification for belief. But having said that, I personally, as, as a believer, I wouldn't want to exclude the possibility that God occasionally chooses to do something special. But I think to assign lots of these sort of uh, fake kind of miracles um, you know, to God, is, it doesn't do him any favors. It doesn't honor God in that way to say something's happened when really it's a delusion. God may exist, but no argument will ever prove it. I cannot imagine any sequence of words or evidence of the senses that could prove without doubt that God exists or does not exist. There could always be another explanation. Weight of evidence, cumulative cases, inferences to the best explanation, perhaps these can work for or against God, but never conclusively. I do not tolerate fallacious proofs of God, so much so that I make a bold comparison. God, if there is a God, would be offended more by a preacher in a pulpit expounding a bad proof of God than by a soldier in a war taking God's name in vain. I'd like God to exist. Anyone who knows me knows this. But I fear believing in God based on reasons that are wrong. So, if God exists, and if God wants me to believe in God, it's up to God to figure out how. I'm sorry, but that's closer to truth. To watch complete conversations with over 100 of the world's leading thinkers on cosmos, consciousness, and meaning, visit our website, closertotruth.com.